This is Understand South Carolina, a news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. Our ongoing Uncovered series has been shining a light on corruption and misconduct in South Carolina, especially in small towns. In the latest installment of Uncovered, reporter Tony Bartlemy set out to answer the question of why this kind of corruption happens. In the past three years, more than 1,100 public servants in South Carolina, including educators, politicians, and police officers, have clearly crossed ethical lines. And often, those public officials are caught doing the wrong thing with little or no consequences. We're talking about that today. Plus, we'll get a brief lesson on public records and why asking for them and acquiring them is key to holding officials accountable. Hi, my name is Tony Bartlemy. I'm a project reporter here at the Post and Courier. One of the reporters working on our Uncovered series, our ongoing look at corruption, especially in rural areas across the state. Just refresh our memory. What is Uncovered? What is the Post and Courier trying to do with this series? Well, one of the disturbing trends in in our country really is the decline of small and community newspapers across this, really across the, the country. And and what happens is we're, we're losing our community watchdogs and people behave differently when they're not being watched or being watched. And so what we're finding is that, that there's a lot of corruption that's taking place that uh, needs to be reported on. So we're trying to fill that vacuum, basically leveraging our investigative resources here at the Post and Courier with resources and knowledge and on the ground uh, experience of, uh, of local newspapers across the state. So in this latest installment, you're writing about this ethical gray zone that exists for, for public officials. Uh, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, Emily, yeah, what, as we did these stories, we started asking ourselves, you know, why are, why are people, why do people commit fraud? You know, why do they cheat? You know, a lot of these people are just average people or, or not, they don't think of themselves as, as crooks. And at some point, somewhere in their jobs, they decide to cross a line. And, you know, we were very interested in, in why that happens. And, and as we did that, we started looking at some cases that don't quite fit your typical fraud case idea. And these are cases in which various government agencies have these boards and panels where they sort of self-police people in their ranks. And there's it, we took a look at them and they're um, in we looked at more than a thousand of them and they're they're really interesting. Can you give me a kind of ethical range of the cases that you were looking at, you know, from from questionable to maybe really unethical? What are some of the examples of maybe what that spectrum is is like in within this ethical gray zone? Yeah, they ranged every range from a cop who faked his target practice test to cops who bullied people and and stole thousands of dollars from taxpayers to super school superintendents. So I, there was one who who threatened to slit an employee's throat, and then another who milked taxpayers for thousands of dollars uh, by going to these conferences and things like that. And you said you looked at more than a thousand of these kinds of cases. How do you find these cases? So this uh, began when I, I was hunting around for something, I forget what, and I came across a case in Darlington County in a very obscure website, South Carolina state agency I'd never heard of. And I found this case where these 
transportation department employees were taking kickbacks and it didn't um, it didn't lead to any criminal charges. Nobody had reported on it. And that got us thinking, you know, where, where else are we seeing these types of cases? And we looked at the Criminal Justice Academy, which has this massive database of people who have entered this gray zone of behavior. Some other agencies, too, from judges to educators. So kind of going back to that that case that you said started this, kind of set the, set the scene for us of where this happened and why this was a good example to go into this ethical gray area and kind of examine it a little further. Yeah, so this particular case happened in Darlington County in the PD region of, of South Carolina. And it involved a, a couple of highway Department of Transportation foremen who were paying a tree service company to remove trees. And what would happen uh, is that the tree service company guy, the tree cutter would come over and and the highway foreman would pay him with a uh, credit card, a state credit card, a purchase card. And then the tree company guy would hand them $200 for giving him the business. So that's a kickback, clearly wrong. You can't do that. The thing that I liked about this story was I got a hold of the SLED case uh, documents. The SLED did a big investigation into it. And I got a hold of the video interviews of, of all the witnesses, including the highway, uh, the transportation department folks. And you, you could see them, especially one guy. One guy was clearly, he was, his conscience was, was killing him. He was really upset. He came forward. He admitted what he did. And you could see the, the impacts of crossing the line. And I, I love that, that conscience issue. And, and that helps us, that helped us explain sort of why people do what they do. Right. And that was the, the question that you were looking into, right, is, is why people do cross the line like that. What did you find in terms of maybe some of that, that research that shows why people cross these ethical lines like that? Yeah. I, some of this sort of was common sense, but also, I don't know, for me, it really opened up my eyes a little bit, looking at some of the sociology behind fraud and and what, what happens is most people who commit fraud don't have criminal records. They are people who feel a sense of something inside of, of them is missing, some sort of lack, some, you know, they're, maybe they feel like they should be living a better life. Uh, maybe they think their employees are, are going to screw them or, you know, they're not particularly happy with their jobs or that maybe their employer did something that made them feel a sense of resentment. And so then at some point in their in their, in their minds, they decide to cross a line and do something unethical. And then the, 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 I think the most important thing that happens next, and this is what allows people to continue fraudulent activity, they start making uh, excuses. They rationalize what they're doing. Oh, everybody else is doing it. I sh- should have gotten that raise anyway. And then suddenly they've, they've gone from law abider to lawbreaker. Going back to that case in in Darlington County, there were two different foremen. How were each of them involved? So one one foreman, had, it was his job to pay the tree company, but then his he has this purchase card, this P card as they call them, and and he'd racked up so much money on his P card that he was at his spending limit. So he asks another foreman, "Hey, can you pay this guy?" And the guy says, okay, yeah, no problem. And that's when the tree guy comes over to him and, and says, hey, here's 200 bucks. 
and that tears him up. Um, but then something else happens. So a, a, a year later, the same situation happens again. The tree cutter comes over and tries to offer him money and the foreman says, no, no, I can't take it. This hurt, this tore me up. So the tree cutter just throws the money on the ground. And so does the foreman pick it up or not? You got a hold of those sled interviews where they were asked those questions. Did you ever take those kickbacks? Did you pick up that money? What did they say? I was especially interested in the one who had that that battle with his conscience of, of saying, no, I, sh- I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. So the, the, the guy who was really struggling over it, you know, he sees the money on the ground and he picks it up. But you know what I thought was the most interesting thing that he did after that? And it's very telling. He he went home and he stuffed it in a jar with the other money that he'd taken. And he just kept it there. Didn't spend it. What about the other foreman? Did he say, did he admit that he had taken kickbacks? <laughs> yeah, he was he, he was, was a little different. The, the agents called him in and, you know, he denied doing anything wrong over and over. And he, it was a really tough interview. It reminded me of some of our interviews, you know, when we're interviewing somebody and they go, way off course and you try to bring them back and they asked him over and over did he take the money he said no and then finally they confront him with the fact that yeah we have evidence that you did and then he finally admits to taking smaller amounts of money and apologizes for lying to them his interview was is, was a lot different than the other one and he got fired and and the guy who really felt remorse and actually he was the one who brought it to attention to his supervisors. He was suspended without pay for five days. And that was the end of it for him. You mentioned some of the these other bodies that kind of self-regulate. Another was uh, the Criminal Justice Academy. So first explain just w- what is the Criminal Justice Academy and then what kind of cases are they looking at? Criminal Justice Academy in South Carolina is the agency that certifies our law enforcement officers. It's essentially giving them a license to do what they do. And they provide basic training for new officers and advanced training. And whenever an officer engages in some sort of misconduct, the department will report that misconduct to that agency. And then the officer has the ability to contest that allegation. And there's a hearing and a panel, and they all decide what whether or not to essentially yank that officer's credentials to be a law enforcement officer, essentially end the, his career, his or her career in that field. You know, there were 600 allegations of misconduct that we looked at in just in the last three years. So there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on that never makes the newspapers. Right. And another one is um, the education department. There are another where they are reviewing ethical cases. What kind of cases would the education department be handling? Yeah, that was very eye-opening. They, so a lot of the a lot of cases involve teachers who just essentially quit for whatever reason. Sometimes it was COVID this year in the past year, and they essentially breached their contract. Those were the on the lower end of uh, the scale of ethical breaches. More interesting were these cases of, of of educators who were sending inappropriate texts to students, or I mean, one they found one teacher passed out in the bathroom because he was on meth. Another t- another teacher stole a kid's saxophone and pawned it because he was going through some financial troubles. You know, so a lot of these, yeah, it, it was <laughs> it was an eye opening world, eye opening window into a world of 
uh, bad choices. So both of those examples, the Criminal Justice Academy and then the Education Department, in terms of those cases that they're reviewing, are they publicly available? How easy is it for a, a member of the public, you know, to just try to find these cases? Yeah, that's a great question. You, know, you, you would think it would be really easy to look up a, a misconduct case against a law enforcement officer, especially given all the attention to policing that's taken place in the last couple of years. Um, but you can't. You can't find it anywhere. You actually have to request it through the Freedom of Information Act request. And I'm still, I'm still waiting for some of the documents, you know, after a month or two. And do you, do you really think Joe Citizen, Joe ordained Citizen, is gonna, gonna do that? No, it's a, it's it's an e, actually an easy solution. You know, we put this stuff online. Can you explain what the Freedom of Information Act is, and then how you use it as a journalist? The Freedom of Information Act is a law passed by the General Assembly that requires public agencies to give the public documents that it produces. Basically, the public has a right to these documents because we paid for them. And reporters use this uh, as, as a way to uh, obtain information about murders and about police uh, brutality, everything you can name. And it's really a, a tool of transparency. I feel like this is something that, as a as a journalist, you'd know what it is, but wouldn't necessarily know the process if you are not a reporter. But how do you make a Freedom of Information Act request? Yeah, so we 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 do these all the time, so it's not a big deal. But for the public, it's probably pretty complicated. You know, you have to write a letter. Typically, you have to cite the law. You have to know what to ask for, and and so. We, we have actually a, a, a little guide on our uncovered site. So if you go to postandcourier.com backslash uncovered, you'll find our, our citizen's toolbox that'll help guide you through that. Uh, but, but yeah, you have to ask for documents. You have to be specific. And then you know what? You got to pay for it sometimes. And that's what sort of bugs me is that here, here we are as taxpayers paying for, for these documents. And then we get slapped with fees that are you know, hundreds, thousands of dollars sometimes. And, and also, you know, we're also seeing government agencies use this law as a, as a way of denying or slowing the flow of information. Working, one agency that, that we looked at was the John De La Howe School up in Greenwood. And they were very good at, at giving us documents early on. And then we wrote a critical story. And now they are waiting for the very last second to release information. They, are, they went from, you know, good intentioned public servants to just complete obstructionist. I think one thing that, that also may not be understood is why you would pay after making a Freedom of Information Act request if that is, you know, like we explained, it is our information and we paid for it. So why would a news organization have to then, or an individual, have to then pay to get that information? The, the public agencies will say, oh, well, it takes time to fulfill that request. And there, there's some validity to that. It does take time to go look up the documents. And yeah, it does take time. But they often, over and over again, these agencies jack up their prices just to prevent this information being released. And I think at least in, in my experience, the most important thing 
when you are making a Freedom of Information Act request is that you know you know what you're asking for and and you know what you're looking for and and that can sometimes be a very specific thing, right? That specificity can be so important to getting all the information you need or getting next to nothing. Yeah. I can I, I'll, I'll make a true confession. I, I I submitted a FOIA and I asked for emails that included all these search terms. And then the agency, this is John DeLahau, basically said, oh, we'll just look for all these emails with all of these, that, that contains all of these search terms. And I had meant any one of them. Long story short, they said, oh, we didn't find any emails. Hi, I'm Jennifer Barry Hawes, a reporter from The Post and Courier. Working as a local reporter, I found that we can cover national stories in a way that reporters who come in from New York or D.C. or Atlanta simply cannot. We've lived in the community. We have contacts in the community. We've raised children here. We own houses here. We can bring perspectives that somebody coming in from the outside simply cannot. When stories come up, we know who to contact to find out what's going on. We understand the impact that it has on people who live here because we live here as well. That's why the local perspective that we provide is so important. Learn more at postandcourier.com slash subscribe. Now, the education department, they, they do put some stuff online, right? Is it, I guess, how, how easy is that to, to search? It may be available online, but what's the, the ease of use for actually going through those cases? Yeah, that's another good question, a good, good distinction to make. You can put stuff online, but if you can't search for it, what good is it really? Um, and so the education department actually does a little better. They they put their uh, their findings online uh, month by month. They usually have the the name of the teacher and whether it was a suspension a suspension and maybe a sort of a general description of what what it was about, such as a breach of trust or something like that. But you really unless you know you really don't know what it's about. Um, you don't know where the teacher is. You you have to go through each case one by one to find out what's going on in your district, which I think would be the most important thing for the public to, 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 to want. What difference could it make if these cases were more publicly available? If there was more transparency about these ethical breaches? Yeah, it may, it may not seem like a big deal that the, that the state doesn't put this stuff, make it more publicly available, but it is a big deal because by putting all this information up, by exposing the public to th th these cases, then you, you begin to create this culture of scrutiny and, and this, you, you begin to clarify those lines. And, and by that, I mean, you are telling people, you're telling workers, you're telling the public that here are the lines, here are the consequences if you cross them. And that kind of gets to the heart of the whole fraud recipe where, where you start making you know, the, the risks begin to outweigh the reward of doing something deceitful. So I guess the question then is, why are these bodies not making this information more publicly available? Yeah, they'll, they'll claim, oh, it's technology or time, but those excuses really fall flat when you when you think about it. We, we took a look at all of our, uh, at the Ethics Commission earlier this year for one of our uncovered uh, stories. And and the Ethics Commission also makes it very difficult to find out where who has violated the state's ethics laws. They essentially create a list 
of people, and that's it. It's just a list of people. You'd never know what they did, who they are, what you know, and what the, their punishments were. And we, one of our digital team guys, he built this searchable database of a, a limited number of cases, allowing the public for the first time to to, to search for the ethics violators in their areas, in the areas in which they live. He, and he did it pretty quickly, so they could too. Yeah, and and how can that tool be used? How does that how does that tool work, and how might readers and listeners be able to use it to? Find out about ethical violations in their area. Super easy. All you do is you go to our our story, and then you can use our our little tool that we made, and 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 you can search by uh, name, you can search by uh, geographic area, and find out who's who's doing bad stuff. This project is ongoing, and you've been working on this for a number of months now. Like you said, one of the questions that you were interested in is why people commit fraud. Is there something that that was your takeaway or, you know, what did, what did you learn? And maybe do you have a little bit of a better understanding of why people cross those lines? Yeah, I think it helped me sort of think a little more deeply about our identities, you know, how you know, when we are, all of us at some point in our lives are going to feel a sense of, of something missing, you know, a lack, it, whether it's money, whether it's whatever. And then, so what then, what do we do with that, that void? That, that to me was the interesting, interesting part of it that, that really affects all of us. We all will, will make these, dis, these decisions. And, and then, you know, the rationalization side of the picture that, you know, that's what, that's the fuel that makes these bad decisions happen. All right, listeners, that's all for today. If you haven't yet, check out our Uncovered series to read coverage from Tony and other reporters who are exposing instances of misconduct and corruption in our state. We'll link to the Uncovered homepage in today's show notes. We also have a couple other episodes of this podcast about the same series, So we'll link those as well in case you miss them. If you have any ideas for future shows, comments, questions, or suggestions, email us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or message us on Twitter at understandsc. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see y'all next week.